0: We're going to talk tonight and think about the subject of the virgin birth. Let's define it. When we think about a virgin birth, what is it that we mean? The virgin birth refers to the supernatural conception of Jesus. Now we can, we can add a bit to that. At the core, the supernatural conception of Jesus by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary. Mary. Without the seed of a man. So, there's some additional phrases, right? So, the virgin birth refers to the supernatural conception of Jesus by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary without the seed of man. Now, I'm using the language virgin birth, we could be more precise. After all, when you think about the birth of Jesus, the birth of Jesus was like other births. When people use the language of virgin birth, what they're talking about is the virginal conception. So that's the most precise language we can use. The conception of Jesus is unique. Now I'm going to retain the language of virgin birth and use it synonymously with virginal conception because of the common use of the virgin birth phrase. But know that when people talk about the virgin birth of Jesus, what they're talking about specifically is the unique conception That is taught in the Gospels. There are some objections we have to think about first. Six of them. Try to think about what are the major objections to the teaching about the virgin birth in the the scriptures. Number one. Well people back then would believe anything. Alright so let's just start there. Objection number one. Well people back then would believe anything. So if anybody believed in the virgin birth. Well of course those dunderheads would in the ancient world. They would just believe anything wouldn't they. So this idea is that in the ancient world. The people in that era just wouldn't know any better. So if somebody said, well, you know, I wasn't born by means of a normal uh, human, uh, male and female coming together. Someone in the ancient world might be like, oh, you don't say. Tell me more. Because the idea in the skeptic's mind is that this was an unenlightened group of people easily believing silly myths and things of that nature. But, of course, we know from the very Gospels that there is suspicion about the idea of a virgin birth. Take, for example, the betrothed man, Joseph. So here's Joseph talking with Mary. And Mary is with child. And Joseph wants to know the explanation for this. That's a reasonable concern. And, And Mary's explanation is that, of course, an angel has come to her. And declared to her with a heavenly pronouncement that she would be with child... By the Holy Spirit. Now Joseph's reaction is not, oh okay, one of those things again all right so it's happened to you too Mary and, and after all we know that since that kind of thing happens from time to time, I will completely believe that, that, uh, that truth. Joseph believes I must divorce I must divorce Mary or break off the engagement since the engagement was the kind of formality that would be broken by language that's fitting with divorce language to break off that kind of engagement Joseph is not looking at this situation and said, obviously, this is a conception wrought by the Holy Spirit himself. In fact, this would be such an unbelievable thing that anyone besides Joseph would be hard-pressed to believe this truth, no matter what Mary claimed. Consider how unreasonable it would be for a young teenage girl to say, well, you know why I'm with child, don't you? Obviously, we need to put on the table here the option that the Holy Spirit has come upon me. This is not something easily believed in the ancient world, but rather easily dismissed by anybody in the ancient world, whether it's Joseph the betrothed or Mary's family, uh, her parents. This is a claim that would make no sense to your betrothed or to your parents unless it was a claim you were making based in what you knew was true. So the first objection to consider is that people back then would just believe anything. Well, secondly, someone might say, but people can't be virginally conceived. Exactly. So we want to grant that and say, we're telling you then the fact that because we know people are not virginally conceived, that when it happened, it is of no other explanation than a supernatural one. So we want to say, of course we know, given the pattern of how generations propagate, that virginal conceptions don't just happen. We want to grant that biological and scientific concern. And then to say, we're telling you that Mary was acted upon in a supernatural way by the power of God. Luke 1 tells us that. What I want you to know, friends, is if you believe what Genesis 1 says... You can believe what Luke 1 says. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And if you can believe Genesis 1:1, nothing in Luke 1 is too hard to believe. People can't be virginly conceived. We must insist with that objection. We know that. So by any normal means, virgins are not conceiving. We're looking at a supernatural explanation. Third objection would be, well, the Bible doesn't talk much about the virgin birth. Third objection here, the Bible doesn't talk much about the virgin birth. So the idea here must be something like, must not be that important to believe. The Bible doesn't talk a lot about it. In fact, only Matthew 1 and Luke 1 talk explicitly about the virgin birth. That's a lot of chapters in the Bible not talking about it. Like ninety nine point nine nine, you know, you can do the math. So the Bible doesn't talk much about the virgin birth. Well, no, that's true. But the objection which people have made with this language is, therefore, how important is it really that we believe it? Now, the problem there is a handful of references don't diminish what the Bible teaches. You don't determine the importance of doctrine by counting the number of times it is mentioned. Frequency could be a helpful indicator. It's by no means decisive. I think in his book, Christian Theology, Millard Erickson is right when he says, if the Bible tells us that it happened, it's important we believe it did. Because not to do so is a tacit repudiation of the authority of the Bible. You think about that reasoning. He goes on to say, if we don't hold to the virgin birth, despite the fact the Bible asserts it, we've compromised the authority of the Bible. And there is in principle no reason why we should hold to its other teachings. Rejecting the virgin birth has implications reaching beyond the doctrine itself. And I think his reasoning is correct. If we are people who submit to the authority of Scripture, then we don't need to come up with some arbitrary number. How many times in the Bible does something need to be said in order to believe it? If it is said in the Scriptures and taught, it ought to be believed. Objection number four. The virgin birth was a myth borrowed from ancient mythical stories you hear this from time to time the history channel and other things continue to make non-historical statements in their history channel method the virgin birth was a myth borrowed from other mythical stories now why would this be out there as something said and believed because there are greek myths that talk about gods generating people that are half god half man let me give you some examples there are ancient stories In the Hellenistic world of Zeus, fathering Hercules, Perseus, Alexander. Stories of Apollo um, propagating Asclepius and Pythagoras. The idea is, well, you see, here we have myths where you have a God generating some sort of being. And you know what the gospel writers did is they just looked at that and they said, well, we need one of those. So we're just going to fit one of those in our stories. And this gospel uh, story about the virgin birth is just like those others. Now, the problem is manifold. To answer this objection, we would need to know that in the myths, what you have is not like what you have in the gospel stories. When you read in Matthew 1 and in Luke 1, what you don't have that you have happening in these Greek myths is in these Greek myths, gods are engaging in sexual intercourse with human beings. These stories are stories of immorality, often pagan violence, And these contexts differ from the unique conception of the Lord Jesus in the womb of Mary, which had nothing to do with a sexual act. In fact, the very thing present in the myths is entirely absent in the gospel stories. That's not a small thing. That is a glaring difference. And so if someone says, well, you know, what you read in the Gospels is just like what you read in the ancient myths. It's precisely not what you read in the ancient myths. It's precisely not that. It's considering as well that the Gospels are laden in a Jewish context and background. And the Israelites were a decidedly anti-myth people rooted in the Old Testament where the living God had revealed himself to them over against the pagan idols and worship practices and stories of the ancient Near East. It would actually be quite out of sync for the Jewish Christian gospel writers to deviate from the Old Testament storyline of emphasizing history and trying to incorporate myth along the way as if that was going to persuade their historically minded readers. In fact, don't we read that the gospel accounts present the birth of Jesus in a decidedly historical context? The myths of the Greek empires are not like that. In the gospels, we read about which emperor was in power, who was the governor, who the kings were, who the high priest was, where the land was, and the villages. In other words, there is such an emphasis on historicity. That is not like the Greek myths, So when you hear, which you may hear in times of the year like this one, well, you know, the virgin birth is just one more example of Greek myths. It's decidedly not like those things in the details. And in the details, that's where things matter. Objection number five. God acted upon Mary without her consent. I hear this objection uh, sometimes from a, the youngest generation. I remember a student asking me in class one time, how should we think about the fact that God acted upon Mary without her consent? And so I'm phrasing the objection like this, and the student wasn't necessarily objecting as much as it, the student was inquiring sincerely. And what I'd want to point out that I did then is in Luke 138, listen to Mary's response to the angel. Her response is, behold... I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. So Mary's submission to and embrace of the plan of God for her is explicit. Let me add something to this point, however. God is perfectly altogether sovereign. If God acts upon or toward another, he always acts according to his perfect nature. What we would normally see perhaps from creature to creature activity that we might say this doesn't seem right or this seems wrong or I think this would be appropriate. This would be difficult to say in every case. Oh, we could imply that from creator to creature distinction in the sovereignty of God. All that God does is never wicked, never reckless, never corrupt, never perverse. Anything God does in the life of Mary is always characterized by his perfect justice and his perfect purity. And this objection, then, that God would act upon Mary without her consent, simply doesn't hold water. Not only considering Mary's own words, but in view of the perfect sovereignty of God and all of his perfect actions, we need not worry about that objection at all. Number six, you can be a Christian without believing in the virgin birth. So I've heard this from time to time, not from anyone here at Cosmosdale, but uh, you, you hear this over the years where people are talking about biblical doctrines and they say, well, you know, you don't have to be a Christian and believe that. We need to be very careful here. I think you can be a genuine Christian and not every, understand everything the Bible teaches about certain doctrines. In other words, who converts out of darkness to light and from death to life, understanding all there needs to be understood about the nature and person of Christ uh, the nature's in person of Christ, or the the triune nature of God, or the uh, complexities of the the theories about how the cross and the atoning work of Jesus are accomplished. We we recognize that when we come to know Christ, we may know some essential things about the gospel to be trusted. But then we grow. Then we grow. In other words, there are a lot of things we don't know, and perhaps. Crucial to those evangelistic discussions is not a lengthy discourse with the lost person about the nature of the virgin birth. That might not be on the forefront of explaining what Christ has done to come and save sinners. It may come up, but someone may come to know Christ and not understand the doctrine I'm teaching tonight. Can't we distinguish that from a position of defiance against what they come to learn the word of God teaches? Isn't it a different thing altogether and a far bigger problem if someone comes to learn what the Bible teaches of God and what God has done in his son and the means by which the incarnation happened? And for that person to say, okay, I see that the Bible teaches this. I refuse to believe that. Now that's different. That's different because the posture of a Christian toward the Word needs to be one of submission and willing to grow in truth and understanding, to come to see and trust things by faith that might even be beyond our human ability to fully comprehend. That's different than maintaining a posture of skepticism and distrust toward what the Bible seems to clearly teach. So can you be a Christian without believing in the virgin birth? Well... Can someone claim to follow Christ while steadfastly denying what the Bible teaches about Christ? We would see why that would be a problem. So we want to give people room as they come into the family of God to grow. And we want to be concerned about someone who maintains a steadfast defiance against the doctrines taught about Christ. And that includes a teaching of God's supernatural act upon the womb of Mary. Now what's the biblical evidence for the virgin birth? Part three here is short. Biblical evidence for the virgin birth comes in two Gospels. Matthew 1, verse 18. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. It does not say she was found to be with child from Joseph. So the narrator is very clear. She was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Matthew 1, verse 20. The angel says to Joseph, Joseph, son of David, don't fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. What was Joseph's fear? That that which was conceived in her is from whoever she committed adultery with or immorality with. The angel says to Joseph, that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Matthew one twenty two. all this took place to fulfill what the Lord spoke by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. They shall call his name Emmanuel. So that's from Matthew's gospel. Luke's gospel, Luke 127, Mary's called a virgin by the narrator two times in one verse, Luke 127. In Luke 131, Gabriel says, Behold, you'll conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you'll call his name Jesus. And in Luke 134, Mary says, How can this be since I'm a virgin? It turns out people in the ancient world know how conception happens. So in other words, when the angel says to her, You're going to have a son. She says, Well, how is this going to be? Because, you know... I know how this needs to work. And Gabriel says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, the son of God. The gospel of Mark does not clearly mention the virgin birth. The gospel of John does not clearly mention the virgin birth. The New Testament letters do not mention Jesus born of a virgin. The apostle Paul in Galatians 4 said that Jesus was born of a woman in the fullness of time. But we need Matthew and Luke's gospels to see that the birth from a woman in the fullness of time was the birth from a virgin woman. There are reasons to believe the virgin birth, part four here, six reasons, six reasons to believe the for uh, the virgin birth, not to believe the, the biblical evidence in part three, six reasons for the virgin birth, excuse me, chapter or part four, six reasons for the virgin birth. Number one, there seems to be a connection between the virginal conception of Jesus and the sinlessness of Jesus. I'm going to work this out for a moment. There seems to be a connection between the virginal conception of Jesus and the sinlessness of Jesus. Exactly how that connection exists is debated. But there seems to be some sort of connection between the virginal conception of Jesus and his sinlessness. In other words, listen to Luke 135 again. Okay, Try to listen to this with fresh ears. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore. Okay, so there's a statement that's about to be made an implication being drawn. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. The New Testament emphasizes the sinlessness of Jesus in the Gospels, in the letters of Paul, in the letter of Hebrews, in Peter's letters. The New Testament in the Gospels and the letters make clear that Jesus is without sin. And that that requires some explanation. How is it? that Jesus is uncorrupted by sin or without a sinful nature. It can be understood that the doctrine of the virgin birth has some explanatory power here. Now, we have to recognize that one of the mistakes that has been made is that someone might in church history say, the reason Jesus is sinless is because sin is passed through the dad. And therefore, by getting a dad out of that picture and you just got married, There's no transmission of a sinful nature. Now, there have been people who have taught that. I think there are some problems with that, namely that Mary has a sinful nature. You know, Mary contributes uh, as well as a biological father would normally contribute to uh, this whole situation. So it takes two for conception. And I don't think we should say that a woman is unable to transmit a sinful nature while the man can. Even though that has been an explanation offered, I don't think that's the explanation of the connection. Instead, I think we have to say, in some way, the work of the Holy Spirit upon Mary ensured that the human nature would not be corrupted. Not because Mary's nature is uncorrupted. Some have wrongly concluded that too. And not because the Father is the only one that can pass it, but because the work of the Holy Spirit uniquely ensures. And then there's some mystery. You just try to zoom in on that and you're like, oh, well, you know, you get people can speculate on that. But I think Luke 135 is drawing an implication of the overshadowing power of the spirit and therefore the holiness of the child that results. Reason number two for the virgin birth. The first was that the conception of Jesus and his sinlessness have some sort of connection. Number two, the virginal conception ensures that Jesus was not born in Adam. This is very important. The virginal conception ensures that Jesus was not born in Adam. We are all born in Adam. Being born in Adam is a way of saying we are sinners by nature and that Adam is our ancestor, our, our father, if you will, in whom we are rightly regarded as sinful. But I think Wayne Grudem is right in his book on the systematic theology when he says Jesus didn't descend from Adam in the same way in which every other human being has descended from Adam. Think about the uniqueness of this. Grudem says this helps us to understand why the, the legal guilt and moral corruption that belongs to all other human beings doesn't belong to Christ. Jesus was not born in Adam. He's a new Adam. He's the last Adam. 1 Corinthians 15 teaches this. Romans 5 teaches this. Jesus is a new federal head. And one of the ways his federal headship or the uniqueness of his, the new humanity he has come to bring in new creation. One of the reasons this is established, it seems, is the unique way in which his conception makes him not in Adam. But a new Adam in which we may be found. We are in Christ. Well, the third reason for the virgin birth The virginal conception brings together both deity and humanity. The virginal conception brings together both deity and humanity. If Jesus was conceived in the same way everyone else is conceived, then who is his dad? If Jesus has a biological father, I would argue theologically, if Jesus has a biological father, then Jesus is fully human but only human. So the point here I'm trying to to work out is that the virginal conception brings together both deity and humanity. And that if Jesus is conceived as everyone else is conceived, then he is fully human, but only human. And if Jesus is only human, then he has a sinful nature in Adam like everyone else. And if the nature of Jesus is corrupted by sin, then he is not without sin. And if Jesus is not without sin, then his death on the cross cannot be a death that satisfies justice on behalf of sinners. In other words, I think there is a a trail of reasoning that doesn't end well. In his systematic theology, Grudem says that God in his wisdom ordained a combination of human divine influence in the birth of Christ. So that his full humanity would be evident to us by the fact of his ordinary human birth from a human mother. But that his full deity would be evident that from the fact of his conception, it is the powerful work of the Holy Spirit. Something about the virginal conception can help us think about the deity of Christ, the humanity of Christ. Reason number four. The virginal conception reminds us that God is the creator. The spirit did not first overshadow the womb of Mary. Far before Luke 1 was Genesis 1. For the Spirit of God hovered over the surface of the waters. You might say the Spirit overshadowed the waters. And what does the Spirit do? The Spirit creates. And this virginal conception, reminding us that God is the creator, this is point number four. I'm trying to tie Luke 1 to Genesis 1 and to say that this is a creative act, this is an act of creation. Millard Erickson says in his book, Christian Theology, Jesus was not produced after the genetic pattern of Mary alone, for in that case, he would have been a mere clone of her and necessarily have been female. Instead, a male component is contributed, created by the Lord. In other words, what you're dealing with is an unusual conception Where what is necessary for Jesus to be a truly human man is the result of not just what Mary contributes, but what the Spirit creates. The Spirit who hovers and overshadows with power that said, let there be light, fills the womb of Mary with life. The virginal conception reminds us that God is the creator. Number five. The fifth reason for the virgin birth, the virginal conception reminds us that salvation is supernatural and miraculous. The virginal conception reminds us that salvation is supernatural and miraculous. Mary's pregnancy is not a normal situation, it did not result from natural means. It is miraculous. What could that suggest? That what God is doing in salvation is indeed of heavenly origin. The virginal conception is a miracle, and the Bible is full of miraculous stories. Salvation is supernatural and miraculous, and if you're going to isolate a biblical miracle and say, that didn't happen, how long will it be before you're getting rid of other biblical miracles for other reasons? The virginal conception is a miracle. It demonstrates the supernatural, miraculous power of God that reminds us of how salvation itself is of the Lord. Just as this conception was wrought by the power of God, so is salvation from the Lord. Millard Erickson says in his book, Christian Theology, the virgin birth points to the helplessness of humans to initiate even the first step. In other words, the initiating gracious work of God upon Mary is a picture of all the origin of salvation from the Lord, and namely that he moves toward sinners. Sinners. The virginal conception reminds us salvation is supernatural and miraculous. Last reason the virginal conception is the climax of the Bible's previous miraculous conceptions. The virginal conception is the climax of the Bible's previous miraculous conceptions. Is this the first time the Lord has involved himself, if you will? in a need where an offspring had been promised and then it needed to be propagated. Think about Sarah, barren. Think about the next generation, Rebecca, barren. The next generation, Rachel, barren. All the patriarch's wives were to have children as a result of the Lord granting them conception, yet through the expected natural means of a male and female union and intimacy. And yet the barrenness was the obstacle. The barrenness overcome by the power of God. Not only do we see that in the Pentateuch. Think about in the book of Judges. Samson's mother. Manoah's wife is barren. And Samson is born as a result of the Lord granting the power to conceive. Overcoming barrenness. Think about Samuel and her, his mother Hannah. Before Samuel is born... Hannah is able to conceive because the Lord overcomes her barrenness. Think about Elizabeth in the New Testament. John the Baptist is born as a result of the Lord granting the power of conception to John's parents, Zechariah and Elizabeth. We have seen the Lord act upon others, granting the power to conceive. And the virgin birth, or the virginal conception of Jesus, is the climax of of the Bible's earlier miraculous conceptions, because it's greater. Do you see how it's not less than or equal to, but even more confounding than the earlier ones? I think in his book, The First Days of Jesus, Kostenberger is right when he says the virgin birth represents the final and most supernatural birth in the succession of them that we see in the Old Testament. Something climactic, something of an even greater sign. Think about John Frame's language here in his systematic theology. John Frame says, In the history of redemption, a miraculous birth signifies a major development. Something going on in the biblical storyline. It's like, here was a situation. A woman was barren. God overcame the barrenness. A child is conceived. Something significant is going on in salvation history. So Frame says, a virgin birth is a greater sign than all of those. And it indicates that something far greater is about to take place. So the, the virginal conception of Christ is the climax of the Bible's previous miraculous conceptions. Those are six reasons for the virgin birth. So we have to consider... In light of this, some reasoning that I would like to apply from 1 Corinthians 15. In 1 Corinthians 15, the resurrection of Jesus is reasoned about by the Apostle Paul. Because there were some people in Corinth who said, there is no resurrection. And Paul says, basically, I don't think you've thought that through. Because if there's no resurrection, then there's a series of other things that follow. So I just want to take that notion... And say, what if someone says, well, there's no virgin birth. Now, I'm going to lift some language from 1 Corinthians 15. If Christ is proclaimed as born of a virgin, how can some of you say he was not? If Jesus wasn't born of a virgin, our preaching is in vain and our faith is in vain. We're found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that his spirit overshadowed the virgin Mary, whom he didn't foreshadow if Jesus wasn't born of a virgin. If Jesus wasn't born of a virgin, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. In other words... If the gospel writers are telling you that this is what happened, then we don't have the sort of liberty to pull that miraculous thread and do away with it without doing damage theologically to other parts and doctrines of the faith. Number five, what the virgin birth doesn't mean. What does the virgin birth not mean? Four points. The virgin birth doesn't mean Mary remained a virgin afterward. The virgin birth doesn't mean Mary remained a virgin afterward. After the birth, that is. She was not a perpetual virgin. The Roman Catholic teaching of Mary's perpetual virginity is an unnecessary and poorly reasoned conclusion. She had multiple sons and daughters, we're told in Mark 3.31. Jesus had brothers in Mark 6.3. He names brothers, Mark does, names some of Jesus' brothers, James, Joseph, Judas, Simon. And Mark refers to Jesus' sisters. Now, there has been an effort on the, in in some interpreters in church history among Roman Catholicism, to try to preserve Mary's virginity in a sense of holding her in some sort of exalted and pristine condition. But this is unnecessary. There's nothing sinful or corrupt about having children. And it would be wrong to say that what the Bible calls Jesus' brothers and sisters are in some way his more distant relatives or cousins, as the explanation must go if her perpetual virginity is to be maintained. I don't think her perpetual virginity is a natural reading of the text at all. Rather, the unique conception of Jesus is what we affirm, and that the virgin birth doesn't mean Mary remained a virgin afterward, but rather she and Joseph would engage in the normal and expected union of a husband and a wife, producing the children identified in Mark 3 and Mark 6 and other parallel verses. Number two, the virgin birth doesn't mean Mary was sinless. This is also an error within Roman Catholicism. That if we insist on the sinlessness of Jesus, that must depend on the sinlessness of Mary, so it's reasoned. That if Mary is highly favored, using the language of Luke 1, that can be misunderstood by certain interpreters to read that she is viewed as a a dispensary of grace and is not someone characterized by sin. The immaculate conception is a phrase referring not to the conception of Jesus, but what these interpreters say is true of Mary, that she was immaculately conceived within her mother's womb and does not inherit sin. Pope Pius IX, in December 18, 1854, said the most holy Virgin Mary was preserved free from all stain of original sin. The Catholic Church still teaches, and I quote, that Mary was free from every personal sin during her entire life, end quote. This is not necessary to maintain. It's not what the Bible clearly teaches. Instead, we see that the Holy Spirit's act upon Mary was not dependent on Mary's sinlessness, but on the power of the Holy Spirit to ensure Jesus' uncorrupted nature as a human being. Number three, the virgin birth was not the beginning of the Son of God. Jehovah's Witnesses are wrong. The birth of the Son of God, of the Virgin Mary, is not the beginning of the Son of God. Let's distinguish between the birth of the Son and the beginning of the Son. The Son of God is eternal along with the Father and the Spirit, ever reigning and ever ruling, worthy of all majesty, having neither beginning nor end, Alpha and Omega, first and last. And the divine Son assumes to himself a human nature in the incarnation. The virgin birth was not the beginning of the Son of God. The Son of God is incarnate in the virgin birth. The word That was with God and was God and from the beginning by whom all things are made. Without whom nothing was made that has been made. That word becomes flesh. The virgin birth was not the beginning of the son. Number four, the virgin birth does not cancel out the deity of Jesus. This requires complex thinking in the doctrine of Christology. What is true of Jesus? He is one person with two natures. A divine nature and a human nature. And everything true of God is true of the Son, even after the Incarnation. The Incarnation does not switch off divine attributes. What you would end up with is a Son that is truly human, but no longer God for a time. The incarnation is not the ungodding of the Son because he assumes a human nature. Instead, everything that is true of God is true of the Father, the Son, the Spirit, and the Son after the incarnation. What is true in the incarnation is a truly human nature assumed by the person of the Son. The complexities of talking about this are obvious. It is difficult and easy to veer into one ditch of heresy or another, denying either something of Jesus' humanity or denying something of his deity. This has been the impetus in the early church centuries for careful crafting of creedal language for us to confess. It's a lot of C's. I'm a Baptist. Those are not meant to be all in a row. But, uh, but nevertheless, you know, it, it certainly works. There is a, a, an emphasis, nevertheless, in the deity of Jesus, in the humanity of Jesus. The virgin birth does not cancel out the divine nature. We need to listen to the creeds for a moment, part part six here. Listening to the creeds, the Apostles' Creed from the second century says that the Son was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. What was confessed after the teaching and ministry of Jesus and his disciples in the first century. Well, in the second century, when the Apostles' Creed is in its early formation, you know what they confessed in the century after Jesus and his disciples? They confessed his virgin conception. That's what they believed. This was not developed like somewhere in the Middle Ages. This is early Christian doctrine. It was written in the first century, and it was taught even into the second century. We can think about the 4th century creed known as the Nicene Creed, which we'll recite again this coming Sunday morning. That Jesus was, and I quote, incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man. You know, the reason we recite this is because this is what Christians have believed from the early church. This is not later developed doctrine at some obscure point in church history. This was the belief of the first century apostles and the second century church put in these creedal formations. Now, somebody might say, well, these creeds are not inspired. But deviating from the church's creeds is not safe. It is foolish and arrogant. As one writer put it, the creeds are not more important than the Bible, but they're more important than you. You. They're not higher than the Bible, but they're higher than you. Putting it another way, theologians throughout the ages have demonstrated the trustworthiness of these creedal statements as accurate, concise summaries of what Christians believe. The reason we confess the creeds is because we believe this is what the Bible teaches. Like we're summarizing doctrine. We're saying this is our confession. And we believe this is what the Bible teaches in line with the orthodox trail of the great tradition throughout 2,000 years of church history. We're not trying to do something new. And to reject the creeds or to deviate from what they teach or to deny what they teach is neither right or safe. It is foolish. Lastly, let's consider some theologians from church history. An example of some of the second century theologians, in addition to the Apostles' Creed from the second century, here's a man named Ignatius. In the second century where Ignatius was martyred in approximately 117 AD, he says that Jesus, let me get to the quote here, that uh, the virginity of Mary was mysterious and should be shouted about. He defended the doctrine of the virgin birth against those who said Jesus only appeared to be human. One of the early church heresies is that Jesus was divine with only an appearance of humanity. It was like a ghostly form. That he did not have true flesh. And Ignatius says, well, then we need to talk about his birth. And the conception in the womb of Mary by the Holy Spirit. Because this demonstrates a genuine humanity. And so the the virgin conception of Jesus was important to the early apologists of the Christian faith against those who would deny a genuine humanity of Jesus. Another example would be Justin Martyr from the second century. He says, and I quote in his dialogue with Trifo, a Jew, he says, Jesus was the only begotten of the Father, being begotten in a particular manner as by the word and power of God and afterwards becoming man through the Virgin. So begotten of the Father, he's the only begotten Son, forever and eternally the begotten Son, never coming into being, but becoming man through the Virgin. Cyril of Alexandria in the 5th century AD Calls Mary the Holy Virgin, the one who had been set apart, in other words, for this unique work, to bear the Son of God. Herman Bavink, many centuries later, says the supernatural conception is not a matter of indifference or without value. It is intimately tied to the deity of Christ, to his eternal preexistence, to his absolute sinlessness, and is therefore of great importance for the faith of the church. You know, we've covered a lot of ground tonight, looking at defining the virgin birth, considering some objections, the biblical evidence, thinking about reasons for it, what it doesn't mean, what some of the creeds have said throughout the history, a small sampling of quotes. As Christians, the ultimate reason we believe in the virginal conception of Jesus is because the Bible tells us so. That is the ultimate reason. The miraculous work of the Holy Spirit upon the womb of Mary ensured the sinless nature of Jesus' humanity. The Word became flesh without ceasing to be the Word. And we confess with the creeds of the Christian church that Jesus is truly divine and truly man, and the Incarnation is the greatest wonder in the history of the universe. The Incarnation is a testimony of God's faithfulness to His promises. It is a testimony to God's power to accomplish all that He has planned. It is a testimony to divine wisdom that confounds the wisdom of the age. Through the conception and birth of Jesus, God's plan of redemption was not merely promised and patterned in the Old Testament any longer. The days of fulfillment had arrived. For in the virginal conception of Christ, the confession of the saints is that God has come to us and in the person of his son is incarnate that he might come and save the world he loves. Let's pray.